0: It is my privilege to invite you to today's sermon podcast. I have made the Apostle Paul's prayer request my own. When he states in Ephesians six nineteen, Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. May today's sermon come alive to you and aid you in your understanding of God's plan for your life. Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you today. Are you glad you're in church? Well, good. Are you awake? Because I'm about to preach. I can put you to sleep, you know, if you want. Don't know if you heard about the little boy and his dad was sitting down on the front pew and, and the pastor was preaching. And, and uh, the dad went to sleep, started snoring. And finally, the pastor had had enough. The preacher said, hey, wake your dad up. He's bothering me. He said, well, you wake him up. You're the one that put him to sleep. <laughs> anyway... Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us on live stream. We're going to take a few moments here and spend some time in the Word of God. Uh, before we do, let me just say, uh, this week, continue to pray. Uh, we have board meeting Tuesday night. That's scheduled every, every month. It's usually the second Tuesday following the last Sunday of the month, if you want to do that calculation. And uh, so Tuesday night, I understand the board's going to go into executive session which means uh, they, they at the end of our regular board meeting, they go into a session where it's just the elected officers. So the staff aren't there or anybody that's not elected to the church board, um, they, they leave the room. That would include me. I'm not elected to your church board. Um, I get paid for being good. They're good for nothing. So that's the way I look at it. Um, and so we'll leave and they'll talk and they'll pray. In fact, there's some good news on the horizon. And the good news that I have to tell you is, uh, they have an interview scheduled the end of this month. Woo-hoo! That's pretty good, eh? Amen. Well, you didn't seem as, nearly as excited as I was. <laughs> Someone asked me last week, they said, Pastor, how long has it been? I said, well, I'm not really counting. I think it's around 14 months. And they said, oh, okay. I said, well, you know, we've got eight or nine churches open right now on our district. So the district superintendent has a lot to to do, and uh, in fact, a year ago, we had about eight or nine churches open, so there's been a lot of changes going on in our district, and uh, the DS has kept pretty busy, uh, Scott Shaw, at trying to supply these churches, and uh, so a lot of stuff is going on. Someone told me last week, they said, well, pastor, maybe you ought to just uh, sing a song to the congregation, like, love the one you're with. (laughs) All right, then I'll start singing, I'll be home for Christmas. Oh, man. Well, who said church ought to be boring? Amen? Amen. I think God gave us laughter for a reason. And uh, the more we laugh, the more I like it. Well, we've been asking a question. I started last week. We, we started asking a question. Uh, how do we know that this Bible, this, this thing we call the inspired Word of God, how do we know that it's true? How do you and I know it's reliable? I mean, when someone argues, oh, it's just a bunch of junk, that's just another religion. What do you say? When someone challenges your faith in this book, what kind of a validity do you, are you aware of that the Bible has? Well, that's kind of where we're, where we're going. We started it last week a little bit, started talking about what, what, what does the Bible say about itself? What is the criteria that we use to say that the Bible is a valid piece of literature that can make a difference in our lives? Why do we say it's inspired? It's authoritative. It's inerrant—that is, without error. What does that mean? And next week, I think I'll probe a little bit into some of our some of those ideas about translation. Uh, what translation do we use? Why do we use it? Uh, are any translations better than the others? Um, uh, we'll we, we even talk about what's a Western and Armenian perspective on the Scripture. How do we interpret Scripture? How do you interpret Scripture? Um, How do we develop our sermons? What directs us? What guides us? When we open the word of God, it's a serious thing. And I, for one, believe that uh, what the scripture teaches is that those who open the word of God and teach the word of God will be held accountable at a higher level than those that don't. That's a scary thought. So anytime we open the word of God, it's a, it's, it's a very serious vocation. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a children's worker, uh, we don't want to mess with the Word of God. We want to rightfully divide the Word of truth. Amen? That's what the Scripture says, rightfully divide. Now, last week I gave you an Old Old Testament Scripture. We started out with Isaiah 40 because it, it makes this comparison. And we, we talked a little bit about a comparison uh, Contemporary comparison between an author um, George Steinbeck Um, But then the the word of God makes a comparison Between man and everything man is and represents Man on one side and then on the other side is the word of God There's a comparison And, And then we found out it was quoted in the New Testament so this morning I want to read from three New Testament passages. The first two are from uh, Peter, from the from the Epistle of Peter, the the letter of Peter. And then and then we'll go to Timothy. They all have something to say about the word of God. And so I'd like for you to take uh take your word and it'll be on the screen too. Hope you brought your book today. I love it when you bring the book. And uh we'll start with um with 1st Peter and uh chapter 1, I believe, isn't it? And uh so if you'd stand let's open the word of God and let's read one of the scriptures we read last week um, and, and I'm going to be um, I'm going to begin uh, with verse 22 first peter chapter one now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have Sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. Now here's the comparison. For all men or mankind are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Now that's, that's almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, from Isaiah. When you go over to 2 Peter, um, in 2 Peter... Uh, I, I want to start with verse 16. It kind of gives us a broader context of the text. Here's what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again, by the way. Can you feel it? And there it is right there. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So Peter's saying, look, at, we, we, we had, have seen this. We know what we've seen and experienced. Just like John said. That what we've seen, we've heard, we've handled, we've examined with the word of truth. He was God with us. Peter says we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love, with whom with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. Boy, wouldn't you like to have been one of those? We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And we have The word of the prophets made more certain that you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And now here comes our text, part of our text. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of one of the passages where we get our understanding of interpretation and inspiration. Now, now if you go to Timothy, um, in Timothy, I think you're familiar with his writing. And I've referred to this scripture before in verse 16, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3.16. In fact, let's, let's begin with verse 14 because Timothy, um, he's, he's getting some pretty good information here. He says, but as, you, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those whom you have heard it from and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now here it comes. Because all Scriptures God breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Lord, we love your word. Oh, God, we love your word. And we thank you for it today. You have already anointed your word. There's no doubt or question about that. We ask God now that you would anoint once again the speaker, hiding behind the cross, for we would see Jesus of the cross and Jesus only today. Teach us clearly, Father, what we need to know from your word, and we will give you all praise and honor and glory in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So how can we know that God's word is, um, is true? That it represents what was written, in some cases, thousands of years, thousands of years ago. You know, I, I love um, the themes that we get from the word of god we've, we've saw a couple of them already um, as we even read these passages. Uh, all kinds of th- hundreds and thousands of themes. Uh, the, how about the theme of humility? I mean you can 't go very far without seeing the, the theme of humility come into scripture, uh, and they teach us they, they lead us, they guide us into how to live, how to think, uh, how to respond, how uh, to plan. Uh, I I heard a heard a a, a congregation that uh, just loved their pastor and they bought him a button um on the button that said the world's most humble pastor. <laughs> and then later on they had to take it away from him cuz he insisted on wearing it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd heard about a pastor that he he got a personal lesson in humility. He decided to call in sick on Sunday morning. Now there's one for you. I think in all, all the years of my ministry, I can count on one hand the number of Sundays I've missed because I was sick. Um, I, I don't like calling in sick. But here's a pastor. He, he was too sick. So he calls in sick. Someone else needs to preach for me this morning. What well, he didn't tell anybody that he was dying to golf. So he went to the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> on the ninth hole, he got it. He got what they call a hole in one. You know what that is? Yeah. yeah. The big problem was he couldn't tell anybody what happened. (laughs) (laughs) He got a lesson in humility. He'd like to share. Yeah, I got a hole in one. Oh, yeah, when was that? Well, it was... uh, 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 uh. One of the things about the Word of God is it's, I mean, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And when you read it, it will cut you to the quick. It will cut your heart. It will teach you the truth from a lie. It's active. It's alive. It's dynamic. Amen. It's not a dead word. So there's all that and more. But then, how do we debate? How do we, how do we decide? How, do we, how can we prove? Well, I told you last week I'm going to give you some thoughts. So let me, let me just repeat a couple things in case you weren't here last week. Just a couple thoughts. One is, one of the first things God does... in in his word, is he chooses a people to represent him on planet earth. And we all know who those people are. It's the Hebrews, the Jewish people. To this day, the Hebrew people are under attack, because they always have been. And the reason is, I believe, is because the enemy is going to chase God's best. He's going to chase God's chosen people. When you come to Christ, by the way, the battle has just begun. The enemy is going to do everything he can to to defeat you, to discourage you, to destroy you, because you're a Christ follower. And the Scripture teaches us this in Ephesians chapter six, talking about all the beautiful lessons of the Scripture. In Ephesians six, he says, "Hey, put on the full armor of God, because the enemy's after you. Grab the word. He says, put on the helmet of salvation, put on the shield of faith." Put on all the armor that you got so you can stand against the enemy. I'll tell you what, you don't have to look very far today to see that there's an enemy in our world. He is going full-blown. So God chooses this people to represent him. He calls them, he, he, he cultivates them, and he instills in them in him, a very uh, strong desire for his word. And when, he, when God begins to talk to Abraham, and then he gets to Moses, he gives the Ten Commandments, he tells them right away, look, there's a lot of gods in the world, but let me tell you the truth, there's only one God. So thou shall have no other gods before me, because I'm the only true God. Amen? Amen? That's what he tells them. So he gives them this monotheism that they're not used to, and they're kind of processing it. wouldn't say, What? People serve a lot of gods. It's kind of like Paul, you know, when he's in Athens and he goes, Hey, I see you've got a lot of gods. Well, let me tell you about the one and true God. So this is an ongoing thing, and today it's not unusual. I mean, coming back from Africa recently, we saw people serving a lot of different gods. And by the way, it's the same in Homedale and in Boise and in Salt Lake City. There are a lot of gods out there that are demanding attention. God's word says there's only one God. And God reveals himself to his people. We read a little bit of that last last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Shema. You know, the Jewish creed: the Lord, the Lord thy God is one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy strength. And take these laws, put them on your face, on your hands, wear them, speak of them to this day. The Jews that God called thousands of years ago are still dedicated to the Word of God. They have a serious respect and reverence for the commands and the law of God today. Now, a lot of them are stuck in the Old Testament. They never found the Christ of the New Testament. But I'll tell you what, they take the Old Testament seriously. So, um, I threw this out last week. Let Let me throw it out again a little bit this morning. Um... One of the things God did was to help the Jews develop a a uh, a strategy to preserve the Word of God for thousands of years, and he began with what we the Jewish scholars called the scribes or the or, or the sophorim. The These scribes, which we we read about in the Scripture, they were dedicated as, as the custodians, you might say, the overseers, the caretakers of of the Hebrew scriptures. And this started someplace between the best we can find is between the 5th and the 3rd centuries BC. So thousands of years ago, hundreds of years before Christ, these guys were already focused on taking the word of God that came to them and, and making sure it was protected. And their only job, their only job, the Sophram. these scribes, was to carefully preserve the ancient manuscripts. ...of the law of Moses, the Old Testament. Particularly Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now the that they were surpassed though... ...by a group called the Talmudic scribes. Now you remember a few weeks ago, maybe if you were here... ...when I talked about how the Jewish children grew up in schools... ...and they went through these schools of learning... And how that panned out when Jesus looked at the disciples and said, hey, come and follow me. They dropped everything they had and they followed Jesus. Why? Well, because they weren't the best of the best. They didn't make it all the way through school. They were kind of like dropouts. Because they could not, they could not memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They could not interpret the scripture well enough. They had, no, they had no prophet to follow. So when Jesus said, come and follow me, boy, they knew what that meant. They found a prophet that believed in them. Remember that sermon? Well, we're right back to that in a sense. Because now the sofer were the first entry level of these guys who were custodials of the word. But then the Talmudic scribes, they begin to guard and interpret the law. They would say, this is what the law means. And you can see how, uh, if you move towards legalism, why the Jews, before you knew it, they had 600 and some laws describing... Everything that God put down, they took it, they went overboard. But their job was to guard and to interpret the law. And, but the, then the Talmudic scribes, they, they, were, they were followed. And if you go back to my sermon a few weeks ago, you kind of see this playing out. They were followed by the better-known Masoretic scribes, the Masorites. And, and the Masorites, they surpassed everybody in their transmission, in their copying of the Word of God, in the Scriptures, and most of these guys, every single one of them had to have the five first books of the law memorized. Now, again, we've talked about this a little bit, but how would you like... I mean, how many of you have a hard time memorizing, by the way, just just first of all? I mean, we all got John 3.16 down, right? We got that one down. But you realize when, when our kids, when they go through the scripture memorization process, they will memorize entire books of the Bible to debate. It's kind of like a new a uh, 21st century uh, version of what we're reading about here, which I love because we know that if you hide the word of God in your heart, teach them when they're young, let them get the word of God there sooner or later. They'll never go away from it. Amen. So most of these scribes, they had they had all of the scripture interpreted. But these Masoretes, they had a very stringent, disciplined method, very rigorous of copying the Word of God. In fact, it was so rigorous, they considered the previous copy and the new copy just as inspired as the ones before. Now, put that into your computer, if you would, of versions of the Bible today in relation to inspiration. Is one translation more inspired than another? Well, when you come to these Masorites, they would take a copy, the most recent, then they copy it again, and they consider the new one just as inspired, just as authoritative, just as inerrant as this one. Why? Well, I'll give you a couple ideas. But what I want you to see is God and His divine providence. He preserved the Old Testament. He, he micromanaged. He... He, his DNA is all over it. He, he oversaw the writing of Scripture in such a way that today, we can be 100% sure that what we have coincides with what was written thousands of years ago. woo That's pretty cool. That is pretty stinking cool right there. Now you say, Pastor, prove it. Well, I, just hang on. Put your seatbelt on. I'm going I'm to prove it. I'm going to show you how that plays out. Uh, the, the, first of all, the, these Jewish guys, these Masorites, they would begin their day by, by ceremonial washing their entire body. They could not even begin transcribing or copying the scripture without being bodily clean. Something about a clean heart and pure hands, something like that, right? Uh, clean, cl- clean hands and a pure heart, Right? By the way, one of the first things I do after Sunday morning, you know what I do? I make a mad wash to the restroom and I wash off all the Nazarenes. No telling where those hands have been. I mean, we've got a lot of cows around here, do we not? Come on. Yeah, by the way, brother, I've been praying for your hay all week. Yeah, thinking of last week. And I'm not kidding you, you know. We live, we live in, a, in, in our neck of the woods where uh, getting your hay up is pretty important. And you go from one week to the next, and it can be the difference of thousands of dollars. Right, Brother Les? Less and less and less? Got a lot of lesses around here. Yeah. And I've been praying for you. I really have. I believe God hears our prayers, and we need to pray for each other. And I, I believe God answers our prayers. It's important that we lift each other up. I mean, I heard this morning, Linda just told me, that Linda's husband, his home ill today. Now, you may not know Tom. Tom's a Tom, tall, good-looking guy and humble, speaking of humility. Uh, he, uh, he, he works around here like crazy, trying to help with the sprinkler system, volunteers all his time. So he's, he's sick this morning. And his wife is worried about him. Would you just put Tom on your prayer list? There's a lot of, a lot of people to pray for. I believe God, he, he really honors our prayer together. But going back to this whole idea of cleaning and washing, and these guys would wash them with a ceremony. Not just soap and water, but a ceremony to make sure that their body, their entire body, was ready to address the word of God. They haven't even picked up a quill. And they're washing their body to get ceremonial clean. So when they touch the word of God, they're they're worthy. And then they would dress in the full Jewish garb. All their tassels and their, their 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 robes meant something significant that we westernized uh, um, European Protestant evangelicals. Most of you don't have a clue what all this all the ceremonial garb means. They do all this before they even sit down to copy the scripture, and then they would take a quill and they begin to write. When they came to the word of God, they could never use a new quill dipped freshly in ink because it could smear. And if it smeared the word of God, they would have to start all over again. Now let's say you've done a full page, top to bottom, and all of a sudden you get to the bottom, you start to write God and it smears. You've got to throw the whole thing away. It's no good anymore. It's as good as nothing because you smeared the word of God. If you started to write the word of God, you could not stop until you finished the word God, Yahweh. Even if the king entered the room, you had to finish writing the word God before you stopped, stood up to honor the king. That's how serious they were. Now, now I wrote down some of the rules. Here's some of the rules the Masorites had to follow. You ready for this? Here's the rules. The Masorites guidelines for copying, copy after copy after copy for hundreds, thousands of years. Number one, the scroll must be written on the skin of a clean animal. Can't be a dirty animal. It's got to be an animal without spot or blemish. Woo-hoo. Number two, each skin must contain a specific number of columns equal throughout the entire book. Try doing that on your next love letter. Come on, I'm being serious. Try doing an equal... Number of columns throughout the entire book. Number three, the length of each column, the length must extend no less than 48 lines or more than 60 lines. The column breadth must consist exactly of 30 letters. Exactly. How are you going to do that? How are you going to make sure that every line has 30 letters in it? That ain't going to be easy. The space of a thread must appear between every consonant. So if if, if, if you wrote down a consonant and it had two or three threads, you had to start all over. Are you getting how painstaking this would be to copy the Word of God? These Masorites took this very seriously. This was their job. To protect... To govern, to watch over the word of God, to make sure it was exactly as it was given to them earlier. Um, a a breadth of nine consonants had to be inserted between each section. A space of three lines had to appear between each book. The fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy, it had to include exactly it had to conclude exactly with a full line. It had to be a full line. And nothing could be copied by memory. You can say, well, I know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. No, 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 no. You had to you had to look at the word, you had to write it down. For F O R. God, G-O-D. So S O. Love, love. You couldn't do it by memory. You had to look at the words. And the scribe then had to count the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book and compare it to the original. You don't think God wasn't all over this. I'm telling you, God was all over his word. If a manuscript was found to contain even one mistake, you know what they did? Sure. There it is, on the ground. It's no good. One mistake. How many remember the days of uh, um, typewriters? <laughs> yeah. Woo-hoo! Hunt and pick. Uh, One of our grandsons, he saw an antique typewriter at a store. It was way too expensive. Oh, man, I'd love to have one of those. Well, few months later, Lynn and I were in a yard sale and we saw one. Picked one up for a couple bucks. Had the old ribbon that looked like it was ready to fall apart. That was about a year ago. We're told that our grandkids still type on that thing for fun. A typewriter. Plunk, 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 plunk. Laborious, heavy. You remember the, net, net, the, the, the metal arms are kind of like this and they go, poof, poof. But then we we went to the uh, Smith Coronas. Remember the Smith Coronas? The automatic ones. Oh, that's so cool, man. You can type pretty fast. But if you made a mistake and you're you're getting your master's degree, you just asked my wife, Linda, who typed all my master's stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But one day they came out with these little white strips that if you made a mistake, you could stick it in there, type the same letter, and it would erase the mistake. And they would let you get away with that. But I'll tell you what, Linda threw away more papers than we want to count. Probably more because of my handwriting than her mistakes. I kind of write in Greek, you might say. Oh, so those those little correctos, is that what they call them? We love those things, those little white. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, they do. No, yes, no, yes. Uh, Yes, two out of three, no. Yes. No, two out of three, K-N-O-W. No. Uh, See, it's important how you spell the word, right? Because you know this. How many ways can you spell two? T-O. T-O-O. T-W-O. Is that it three ways? Two, two, two. Does it matter which one one you use? Sure it does. Yeah. Just trying to write to your boyfriend, I love you too, and spell it T-W-O. See see how he responds to that. Speaking about loving the one you're with, huh? Yeah. Now, let's see. Where was I? Um, So the idea is God instills in these Masorites. uh, This just kind of boggles my mind how serious God was to make sure that the Bible we have today is consistent. Now, now I don't know if I'm going to get through what, everything I got to say today. I'm having a little too much fun, and I guess that's okay. But um, I think I'll be back next week. So, all right. So, um, so now uh, let's talk about how historians. Let's get out of the biblical religious world and let's just talk about the secular world for a minute. C- can we talk about the secular world? So, historians, how do they? Determine the reliability of ancient literature? Paleographers, how, how do they determine what is legitimate and, and what's false? Not talking about anything about the Bible or religion or God or anything, just secular historians. Well, they, they have a protocol. They evaluate textual reliability of ancient literature according to two standards. One standard is the amount of time it takes for the next copy to be... What's the, what's the amount of time between the original and the first copy? Is it a year? Is it two? Is it three? Four? Is it a hundred? Two thousand? A thousand? So how much time did it take for someone to copy the original? So that's the time amount. The second criterion is um, how many copies are there? Is there one, two, three, four? Are there only segments? So secular historians, when they look at ancient literature, they ask these two questions. How long did it take for the first copy to be done? And how many copies are there? Now, until recently, um, when I say recently, it's a little before my time, but not much we didn't know how accurate our Bible really was. I mean, we had some pretty good guesses. But back in 1947, in Israel, in in out of the desert, there were some shepherd boys, two shepherd boys, watching daddy's sheep. And uh, what do shepherd boys do with rocks? They throw them. Sure. My little granddaughter this week, I was with her. We are around rocks in the driveway. She picks up rocks, starts throwing them. I, I'm inside, I'm just going, would you just please leave the rocks alone? You're going to hit my car. But kids throw rocks. So these two shepherd boys throwing rocks into caves in an area called Qumran. Now, anybody been there before? It's an amazing area. I've been there a couple, two, three, four times. It's an amazing area. This is a a historical area. It's not traditional. It's historical. It's the real place. And these boys are throwing rocks in the caves. And all of a sudden, they throw a rock in a cave and it goes crack, crack, crack. And they go, what in the world was that? That wasn't dirt. So they climbed up into the caves. And the end result was they found some clay pots. And inside the clay pots that were broken were manuscripts, and when those manuscripts found their way into mainstream, they discovered hundreds and thousands of scriptures from the Old Testament. This was written hundreds of years before. Not just one copy, not just two, but hundreds and thousands of of particles, of fragments, you might say. And, And I've seen some of these fragments in new museums. So today, they're placed all around the world in different places. And and so before 1947, we had little, you might say, archaeological evidence. But since then, what they found was manuscripts dated all the way to 900 A.D. 900 A.D. So, so now think about what I said about the reliability of ancient literature and the standards that we use to determine validity. So now we're at 900, but now there's 223 manuscripts in these caves. And it's what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way. I'm sure you've heard about them. You've, some of you probably researched them. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they found out they the paleographers they they dated this these manuscripts the manuscripts hold on now to 125 years before Christ before Jesus 125 years before Je- how many how many thousands of years would that be now do the math 125 years before Christ well it's been over 2000 years since Christ so so you add it up but here's the exciting part. When you look at the Sea Scrolls, they begin to translate them. They took the fragments, brought them out. They, they found more, more pottery, more scriptures, more scrolls. They found, I think, the, almost the entire book of Isaiah. That's pretty cool. The entire book of the Isaiah they found in these scrolls, in these caves. And word for word, Word-for-word translation, what we had in the Dead Sea Scrolls is 95% corrected to what we have today in this Bible. 95% correct. And the 5% that we have that's not correct is like little iotas or maybe a misspelling or a word that might be questionable. We can't quite read it. 95%. In other words, in other words, the greatest manuscript discovery in our lifetime, in our lifetime, I don't care how old you are here today, you might be older than me and that's really, really old. It doesn't matter. The greatest manuscript discovery of all time revealed that a thousand years of writing and copying the Word of God has no deviation from the from, from the original. Amen. It's excruciatingly correct, the copying of the Old Testament. So what you have here? Exactly what was written a thousand years before Christ. Amen. Now, I, I said last week, that's pretty incredible when you consider you give me two Nazarenes and I'll show you four opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but there ain't no debate on this. Right. This is how scholarly men and women weigh the validity of the Bible. Now, I'm about out of time. Uh, so let me, let me just kind of wrap it up this way. Uh, when Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, God's word is flawless, you can count on it. God made sure of it. When Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, says, His word is not only flawless, but it's like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times, it's noteworthy. Check it out. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. In other words, when the Lord Jesus promises, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I haven't even got to the New Testament. We'll do that and we'll start. Let's start together next week. When you look at the New Testament and the credibility that we have historically, by paleographers who study how to verify ancient literature, nothing compares to what we have to the New Testament. Nothing. In fact, I might throw some. I might throw some stuff up on the screen for you next week. How about that? I'll just treat you some stuff on the screen so you can see it. And, and, and we'll look at it because I think it's pretty significant. Amen. When Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Amen. You can take that to the bank. What are you going through today? Tom, whatever you're going through today, Linda, however you're worried for your husband, I'll tell you one thing we can be sure of. God will not leave you or forsake you. He will walk with you through it. Amen. What are you facing today? Anybody facing a, 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 a physical thing? i got a couple things going on right now. You can pray for me. I'm not too much fun for throwing it all out there, but my wife's probably a little concerned herself. But you know what, I'm, what, what I know for sure? God will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Amen. I know he will walk with me through it. So when God says in Isaiah 55:11, I love this. So it is with my word that goes out from my mouth. It will never return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and what it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You can count on it. You can bank on this as the holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. You can trust it 110%. It's yours, but it's like a Christmas gift. You can get the best gift in the world that's under the tree with your name on it, and if you don't open it, it won't do you a bit of good. You got to take it. You got to receive it. Open it. And let it be yours. Lord, thank you for your word. Thy word. It's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Oh, thank you, God, for your word. It's a holy word. It's a powerful word. It's a dynamic word. It's a living, breathing word. It's ours. And I ask God today as we leave this sanctuary of worship and praise. That we would take your word now with us and we would be doers of your word. And not just hearers only. Now Lord, bless the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you. Turn His face toward you and grant you peace. In the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week. I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible.